these last days. The Bible gives us some pretty clear information that we are at the end of the end times. And so we want to, want to go over some things that we've uh, covered before and then uh, hopefully go a little bit further this morning. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Galatians tells us that the desire of all nations that is to come is the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, when the church rises up to be the church, when the church rises up to do the works of Jesus like he said we would do, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now folks, we know some things that the Bible tells us, Paul wrote to us and talked to us about perilous times, dangerous times, strength-reducing times at the end. But the Bible also tells us about the glory of God that will be upon the church. It tells us that Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. And so whereas these may be dangerous times, perilous times, strength-reducing times, these are days of the Holy Spirit. These are days of the glory of God. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1 Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. This word bright clouds is used only one other time in the scripture. It's in the book of Job and it's translated lightnings over there. So when it's talking about lightnings it's talking about a display of God's power. But then also I think this is a good translation where it uh, translates to bright clouds because you remember in the Old Testament the glory of God appeared as a cloud and it was a manifestation of his presence. So it says that if we'll ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make a display of his power and a manifestation of his presence and give to us showers of rain that produces grass in the field. Turn with me to Hosea chapter, two, uh, chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow to know the Lord, his going is prepared as the morning, and he is come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain upon the earth. So the Bible solves the mystery for us about what the rain is. The rain is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the way that that outpouring of the Holy Spirit will manifest itself, according to Zechariah chapter 10, is in a display of his power and a manifestation of his presence. Now folks, there are, there's another reference to these scriptures in Hosea that we just read. And it talks about being revived. He will revive us in the second day or uh, after two days he will revive us and raise us up in the third day this is a reference to what Peter talks about as far as end time doctrine let me read to you from 2nd Peter chapter 3 I'll start in verse 1 this second epistle beloved I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. And of the commandment of the apostles, of us apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved into fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. This is a reference to the oldest known doctrine, or I hate to call it a theory because it's not a theory, it's truth. But this is the, the oldest known doctrine concerning the end times and when Jesus is coming back that, that, that exists in the earth. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. This end time doctrine identifies that just as there are seven days in the week, six days to work and one day to rest, in the same way God's end time prophecy is foretold as far as when Jesus comes back for the church. You know as well as I do that Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. This is information that's directly privy to God and God only. Jesus said he didn't even know when it was. But we've kind of developed the attitude in the church, the modern day church, that it's just going to haphazardly happen. That it's just going to take place at some unknown time. We take scriptures that talk about it coming as a thief in the night. And so we develop the idea, or the idea is created in us, that it's just some kind of random point in time that God has chosen. But let me ask you a question. Is there any other thing that we know of that God does in a random or haphazard way? I'm sure glad he didn't create the earth haphazardly. There's got to be a time when it takes place. There's got to be a set time when God has ordained for it to take place. And here where it says in the scripture we just read in Hosea, after two years are past, he'll raise us up in the third day. Well, we know what that third day is. That third day is the millennium period, the thousand-year reign on the earth by our Lord Jesus Christ. The two days that he's talking about is two days from the appearance of Jesus in the earth to begin with. See, folks, the man has been on the earth for 6,000 years. At the end of that 6,000 years, Jesus is coming back for the church. The rapture will take place. The tribulation will take place. And in that 1,000-year reign, or the seventh day, will take place and manifest. Now, if that's true, then we should be able to calculate it if we know where to start. See, the only reason that, uh, that the rapture is unknown is because we don't know where to start counting from. 
there are two years that are identified as the point in time when Jesus' uh, sacrifice could have been made. One is 30 AD and the other is 33 AD. Either one of those two dates fulfill the things that we know of that took place when Jesus went to the cross. I favor the 30 AD because of some of the details that took place as recorded in the Gospels. But folks, if that's true, then from 30 AD, 2,000 years would be 2,030. Now we know that the tribulation period takes place before the millennial reign of Jesus, so you've got to pull those seven years out as well. So from, t from 30 AD, 30, uh, 2,000 years would be 2030, minus the seven would be 2023. The year 2023 could very easily fit the pattern or fit the details that the Bible tells us that would qualify for Jesus to come back. Well, if that's the case, folks, we're in 2021 now. Is it possible that we have only two years left before Jesus comes back? Well, the answer to that is very simply yes. There's nothing else that has yet to be fulfilled. The only thing we're waiting for is a shout from heaven. Now, if that's the case, what are these next two years going to look like? Well, Haggai chapter 2 said there'd be days of glory. There'd be times of the glory of the church. So when the Bible's talking about praying for the rain, it's talking about the moving of the Holy Ghost, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, just like it was in the early days of the church. There are some things that we could identify it with concerning the dedication of Solomon's temple, which would fit as well. But if God told us the truth, and if we are that close to the end, then there's some glory of the Lord and some operation of the Holy Spirit that we are, should certainly look forward to. The early days of the church talk about things that happened in such great measure that in one instance, at least, people were healed by Peter's shadow falling over them. They would lay on the side of the road and Peter just walked by, didn't minister to anybody, but when his shadow fell on them, then they were healed. Now remember, Jesus said the works that he did, the church would do also and even greater works than these would we do because he went to the Father. I think that healing by shadow is one of the greater works. We don't have any record of that happening in Jesus' ministry. And what that says to me is that God's not worried about us being glorified out of measure when he does miraculous and spectacular things like that healing in my shadow. God's not concerned with sharing his glory with us. He just wants us to make sure to turn it back to him. When Peter and John were taken captive because they healed the guy at the beautiful gate, the power of God was glorified in them because of the work that they did. 
But they turned it right around and put it back over on Jesus. Why look ye on us as if by our own power, our own position has made this man whole? They said that it was the name of Jesus through faith in that name that did the work. As long as we maintain that position, God will withhold his power in, in any measure whatsoever. So here it's talking about, Peter talks about things that are ignored, people being willingly ignorant of. The specific thing that he talks about is people being ignorant of creation account. Ignorant of the fact that the world that then was prior to the Genesis 1 creation account was destroyed by water. Well, that's the condition that the Holy Ghost found it as according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was or became without form and void and darkness moved upon the face of the deep. That world was destroyed Whatever was here before the creation of the earth that we know of when Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, whatever was here was destroyed. Peter calls it that world system. The world that then was, verse 6, being overflowed with water perished. That's a world system. Then he goes on to say, but the heavens and the earth which are now, there's a different heaven and a different earth now than there was back then. The heavens and the earth which are now are by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There was a different world that was created. The Genesis 1 account is the recreation of the earth, the recreation of the earth into what we know, the world system that we know now. Now in James chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it till he received the early and the latter rain. Here's the rain being talked about again. Until the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the specific moving of the Holy Ghost, which will manifest the glory of God in greater measure than anything ever known before to man. These are days of glory, folks. We need to recognize that they're days of glory and that the glory of the Lord will outstrip and outman anything that we've ever had record of or history of for as long as the earth has been in existence. So what do we do? If we are living this close to the end, what are we to do? There should be specific things and specific ways that we live in the last days of the church. One of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago was getting money in the right place and priority in your life. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. But then he also said if we're faithful in the way that we use our money and use it for eternal purposes, if we prove ourselves trustworthy as far as money is concerned, then he'll be able to trust us with true spiritual riches, which are much, 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 much greater than money. 
he told us to give just as he told the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He told him to sell what he had and give so that he would have treasure in heaven. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. It seems like it should be the other way around. It seems like it should be wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. I'm sorry, I just I mixed that up. <laughs> See, it seems like it should be otherwise. It seems like it should be wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. But he put the treasure first. Whatever you spend your money on, that's what you care about. If you spend it only on yourself, then you've got yourself as the, in a place of wrong priority in your life. But if you use your money, your finances for eternal purposes, that shows that you have treasure in heaven. And that's all that Jesus was trying to get from the rich young ruler. He was trying to get his heart in the right place. He had part of his heart in the right place. He wanted to know about eternal things, but he wasn't willing to turn loose of his possessions. Folks, if there's anything you can't get rid of, get rid of it. If you look around in your life and see something that you can't do without, I'm talking about material possessions. I'm not talking about people. <laughs> but if there's anything in your life, any material possessions in your life that you can't get rid of, that's got it too hard a hold on you. You need to get rid of it. And that's how you store up treasure in heaven. Now turn with me over to, to Ephesians chapter 5. The next thing we talked about as far as how to live in these last days, it's Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry. Verse 29, it says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That word, or, uh, those two, two words, corrupt communication, just simply means evil speaking. Let no evil speaking proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Folks, if we're going to live in Holy Ghost days of glory in the last, up to the last minute that Jesus comes, we're going to have to start, stop speaking against the word of God. That's what evil speaking is. It's speaking against the word of God. You remember when the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan to spy out the land. They came back with an evil report. Well, what was that evil report? They said, we can't do what God said we can do. God said the land is ours, but we can't take it. God said that he would deliver the promised land into our hands, but we don't believe he's big enough to do it. So the evil report or evil speaking is just speaking against whatever God's word says. Now that brings us to a place where we look at the Old Testament pattern for being a success and operating in authority in, in this world. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says this book of the law, meaning the word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. God gave man authority on the earth. He said specifically in Genesis 1.26 that his purpose for man on the earth was to have authority over all the works of his hands. We know specifically that that 
authority is exercised and can only be exercised by the words of our mouth. So when God is telling Joshua, who's about to take Moses' place, or has taken Moses' place, to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, God tells him the means and the method whereby we can exercise authority and reign in this life. And that is by meditate or speak the word of God. I think a lot of Christians get freaked out by the word meditate because they think of Eastern religions meditating, sitting in a lotus position and humming or some dumb stuff. But when the Bible talks about meditating, it's not talking about emptying your mind of anything. It's talking about filling your mind with the word. And how do you do that? You do that by speaking the word of God. You do that by speaking God's word. When we speak God's word, it has two effects, or it results in two different things. First of all, it builds the truth of the word in our own hearts and our own spirit. And then secondly, it affects whatever we have spoken it to do. Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. That's a pretty radical example to use when it talks about speaking the word. The power of God's word in your mouth is unsurpassed. There's nothing stronger in the universe. There's no power more powerful than that the man speaking God's word. It's an exercise of his authority. It's the operation of authority exercised in the earth. Now Paul gives us some insight when he's talked about his own difficulty. In Romans chapter 7, we looked at some time ago, he talks about the struggles that he has with his flesh. Now Paul had the same training and education that the high priest had. And a part of that education was to, to memorize the law and the prophets. That seems like an impossible task, but that's what they had to do. And so Paul had complete access through his memorization process, complete access to all the Old Testament promises. So when God comes to him on the road to Damascus and Jesus speaks to him, reveals himself to Paul, Paul accepts Jesus and goes about into the city of Damascus to fulfill what God told him to do. He has access in his mind, not from documents. He didn't carry the Torah around with him, but he had access to anything and everything that God had said through the prophets. And he approached the word of God approached his relationship with God with intelligence, not just an intellectual prowess, but truth that he had built into his spirit for many years of his, of his learning and education. And Paul found that some of the things that the Bible says about righteousness to not be in effect in his life, by that I mean he found that he didn't have the power to stop sinning in the flesh. Now God has set him in a place where his revelation becomes the, the foundation 
for everything the church is built on. He called it his gospel. Well, what good news did God give to him that was so critical as to be the foundation for the body of Christ? He disassociated himself from his actions. The first thing that he did was he identified the difference between the man on the inside who always wants to do the right thing and the man on the outside that's leading him into things that his heart resented because they were sinful actions. He recognizes that righteousness isn't being fulfilled in his life because his body was easily carried away into wrongdoing. So what does he do? He knows the Bible says that the people of God, the children of God are to be righteous. He knows that Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah that offered himself willingly for you and me and Paul included to be saved. But how could he reconcile? And this is the problem that he had. How does he reconcile the fact that the Bible says, the Old Testament tells us about righteousness being provided for us but not being fulfilled in his life. He comes to the realization in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now folks, I want you to realize something. Paul is creating the context through his own experience for the, real, the realization of what righteousness really is for us. You know, one of the things that Paul realized was that apart from the desire of his flesh, he was in a position where he would never sin. That sounds far-fetched to us. But I'm convinced that when the experience of sin that we have in our flesh, and Paul didn't shirk the responsibility of it, he said there's always a law in my members pulling me against the truth of the word. But that didn't do away with the fact that the real man on the inside always wanted to do right. The real man on the inside never wanted to sin. Folks, when this experience of our flesh is removed, when we receive our redeemed bodies, the idea or the thought of sinning will be so foreign to us that it will be even as it didn't exist. Now think about what the devil is doing. The devil is keeping people in bondage who have truly, in reality, been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But he keeps us in bondage because we don't understand what that righteousness brings. He establishes the context for the escape from condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, the end of the verse says. But that's not in the original transcripts. In the original Greek 
in which these things were written. It belongs in verse 4, not in verse 1. Now, why did the translators bring it up into verse 1? Because Paul is talking about a righteousness. He's talking about a deliverance. He's talking about a spiritual freedom that apparently the translators couldn't handle. I can understand them mistranslating a word or two because of their lack of understanding of God or the, the language that is written in. But to pull this phrase up from verse 4 and put it in verse 1 destroys anything and everything that Paul is trying to reveal to us by the Holy Ghost. Now what does this bring to us? Notice what Paul, talk, what Paul talks about, the context that he's talking about, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Skip down with me to verse 11. But if, that word if is the word since, the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So he's talking about the operation of the Holy Ghost that brings a quickening to your body and also to your life. Look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The suffering he's talking about is persecution. It's the only suffering that the new covenant Christians should experience. There'll be times where our faith is tested. There'll be times when sickness or poverty perhaps rises up against us. But it's through faith in God's promises and faith in his word that those things are defeated. So Paul is talking about the difference between just being saved and an understanding of the righteousness of God that brings us into a whole different place in our lives. In Romans chapter 5, verse 17 it says, for since by one man's offense, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, by one man's offense, death passed upon all, or death reigned upon all. Much more, them which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now think about this, folks. Paul is claiming a place of, of authority describing a place of authority where we rule and reign in this life. And then he describes his own journey as of one who is not able to control his flesh. How do those things reconcile? See, when Romans 5.17 talks about receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, to bring about the, the rain, a position of reigning in life. We know that's got to be something more than just getting saved. How many Christians are reigning in life that you know of? It's a small percentage. How is Paul going to reconcile his own inability to control his flesh? with someone who understands what the gift of righteousness is that brings him to the place of authority 
through the name of Jesus. I believe this is how Paul made this, the switch. I believe this is how Paul grew and matured to the place where he could reign in life. And what is he dealing with? What does he have to conquer first to come to that place? He has to conquer the condemnation that comes against us all when we find that we can't control our flesh any more than he could control his. So he comes to the realization he doesn't become more righteous. He just grows in his understanding of righteousness so that the errors of his flesh, the mistakes of his flesh, no longer hold him back. So he tells us that this place of righteousness, this understanding of righteousness is the foundation and sets the stage for the quickening power of the Holy Ghost and the leading of the Holy Ghost himself. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28 reveals to us what God's plan was from the beginning. Isaiah chapter 28, I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Everywhere a little, little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you cause, may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Notice a couple of things about this. We know that speaking with other tongues manifested itself in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when there were 120 of the disciples of Jesus, 120 people that had been saved and had seen Jesus in the interim period of time since the crucifixion, had seen him raised from the dead. Those 120 are in the upper room and suddenly there was a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it entered the room where they were sitting and it appeared upon their heads there were cloven tongues of fire. And then in verse 4, Acts 2, 4, it says, and they were all filled, not part of them, not a few of the lucky ones. They were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other, other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we know that the Bible talks about well, let me just go ahead and read a couple of scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 2 and 4. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. Then verse 4. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself but he that prophesies edifies the church. We think of speaking in tongues as just being us speaking to God. 
Verse 2 says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. But Isaiah chapter 20, 28 that we just read says that with stammering lips in another tongue will God speak to his people. Yet they would not hear. It was the rest and the refreshing, yet they would not hear. There's a supernatural opposition to the Holy Ghost that will always be there. There's a supernatural resistance. And of course the devil's behind it. He's always behind it. But there will always be a supernatural opposition to speaking with other tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. This word mysteries is translated in other translations as divine secrets. So there's always going to be a mysterious aspect, an unknown quality to speaking in other tongues. And that's part of what the devil uses to keep many people out of it, to keep people from being filled with the Spirit. And then if they are filled with the Spirit, to try to keep them from using it. But if these are days of glory... If these are days where the Holy Ghost will operate and the church will be filled with the knowledge of that glory in even greater measure than the early days of the church, then how important is it for us to be led by the Spirit of God, for us to be aware of His presence, and ready and standing ready and able to be used of God. We know Paul certainly was. We see over and over again in Paul's letters to the church and the account of his ministry as recorded in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, one of his most frequent companions. We know that Paul didn't just haphazardly or randomly choose where to go to preach, but that he's also always seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit for where he should go and what he should do. there were times where Paul would come to a crossroads and he would pray. We assume he's praying in tongues because Paul said, talking to the Corinthians, that he speaks with tongues more than all of them. And there were times where the scripture relates to us that the Holy Ghost refused or forbid him to go into a certain town or a certain place. On his first missionary journey, he was forbidden to go into the region of Asia that contained the city of Ephesus. But then there were some years later record where the Holy Ghost directed him to go to Ephesus. 
and the surrounding cities. So Paul is looking not only for where to go, but when is the right time to be there. And he's relying on the Holy Ghost to help him, to show him where to go. Now, folks, would we all agree that the Holy Ghost knows more than, than we do? Would we all agree that the Holy Ghost is always going to lead us into the truth? Well, how important is it for us then to rely on the help of the Holy Ghost to lead us into victory, to, read, to lead us into the place where he wants us to be? To lead us so that we're in the right place at the right time. And how important is it for us to rely on the power of God through the leading of the Holy Spirit that we can't get any other way? How dare we refuse to use what God has given us? Now, I'm not trying to speak to people's motives. I believe most Christians are sincere and honest when they say they love God. But when we have the help of the Holy Spirit, the power of God himself, why would we not want to enlist his aid to bring us to the right place at the right time? Folks, I firmly believe with all of my heart that these last days of the church, these days of glory, are days when we should utilize everything that we have to overcome the work of the devil and to rescue people from his bondage. Smith Wigglesworth was a man that was greatly used of God. And most of what people know about him were the signs and the wonders that God did for, through him and his boldness to operate in the gift of faith or special faith as the Amplified Translation translates it. There were things that were done in his life and in his ministry that are just mind-boggling. Outside of the fact that there were 20-some-odd people raised from the dead, which is a good start. There were things that took place in his ministry. One thing in particular, there was somebody, there was a lady that came to be prayed for that had a big growth on the side of her face. It looked like an eggplant it was purple and discolored as you have perhaps seen sometimes birthmarks and things like that. Wilkinsworth, when she stood before him, looked at her face and reached up and dug his fingers in at the top of this thing on her face and just stripped it off. And he did it so fast that it took everybody by surprise. 
as you could well imagine. And everybody's first concern was for the poor woman who just had half of her face stripped off. But underneath that thing was brand new skin. Now folks, if the glory of the last day church is greater than of the former, that means those are kind of the things that we're going to see too. Peter and John healed the guy at the beautiful gate of the temple through the power in the name of Jesus. Well, if the glory of the last day church is going to be greater, then we're going to see some of that too. Blind eyes opened, cripples healed, signs and wonders and miracles. If God only told us the truth, thank God he did. I'm not sure what to expect in the last days. So I'm just going to expect everything. The Bible says God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. So I'm training myself to think big. Peter, in talking about the last days, said that God is not slack concerning his promises, but that he's waited this long and will wait until the last moment to bring people into the kingdom of God. When the early church started, or in the early days of the church as it began, Signs and wonders were the things that drew people's attention to the preaching of Jesus. They didn't, they mean the disciples, didn't just start preaching Jesus right out of hand. They began talking about the things that God did and the power of God available to mankind. And through the miracles, thousands of people were healed or, or saved at one time. The crippled man being healed at the beautiful gate of the temple caused 3,000 people to get saved. Oh, I'm sorry, it caused 5,000 people to get saved. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit when the 120 were filled and spoke with other tongues, they spilled out into the street and 3,000 people got saved. Folks, it's not hard to get people saved when you show them the power of God. And it seems like the apostles were on to something, that they understood something. 
because it tells us that they prayed after being threatened by the Jewish council, the same ones that put Jesus to death. After being threatened not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus, they prayed that God would give them boldness by stretching forth his hand to heal and that signs and wonders might be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. There's a boldness that comes only by experiencing the healing power of God. Grant unto your servants boldness, they said, as they prayed, by stretching forth your hand to heal. By stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders might be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. Lord, give us that boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Grant unto your servants boldness, Lord, by stretching forth your hand to heal. There's a boldness that comes upon us when we see the power of God in operation. One of the things about the last day promise about the glory of the Lord being greater than it was on the early church. When we do see miracles or when we do see the hand of God or God's power working in some unusual way, I think most of us expect that to just be a one-time thing. We can rejoice because of God's display of his power. But God doesn't seem to me to be talking about a one-time thing in the promises that we've read. It doesn't look to me like he's talking about a one-time thing when he says the glory of the latter-day church will be greater than of the former. Now certainly there were things in the early days of the church that God did on his own. How could you pray or have faith for people to be healed by somebody's shadow? Who would even think to pray that? And so apparently as Peter walked down the street people started getting saved or started getting healed, excuse me. And that must have created quite a stir. But it must have happened in such a manner that it wasn't just a one-time thing. I'm not saying it happened every day. But the way that Luke presents it is not just that at one time this happened. think about that happening in our day what would it result in well if we use an Old Testament phrase 
would it not produce days of heaven on the earth? And remember, Jesus identified the kingdom of God as being when the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. For all the difficulty that the devil's work is bringing, uh, bringing to bear in these last days, the joy, Peter called it joy unspeakable and full of glory, the joy that should be upon the church and the people of God. By witnessing the things that God does to strip the devil of his power and release his hold on people. Would these days of glory not be what God has been looking for all the time? Would these days of glory not be what God would rejoice over to show his power. God's not hiding from anybody. He never has hidden from anybody. But there seems to be, well, not seems to be, there is a specific and direct promise that's made concerning these last days. If we are within two or three years of Jesus coming back. What would God have to do. To justify. What he refers to as the outpouring or the moving of the Holy Ghost. We may have our own ideas of what that would be. But in everything else. God is bigger than we are. So why wouldn't he be bigger in our expectations for that? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know, there was one other time when God talked about having his glory, bringing his glory to bear on someone that opposed him. And that was Pharaoh. the plagues that came upon Egypt, the deliverance that God brought was it, according to Exodus chapter 14, was God saying that he would bring his glory upon Pharaoh. As a kid, I was afraid of things that the Bible talked about in the book of Revelation. And somehow or another, well, through ignorance, not somehow or another, but through ignorance, because I never read it, didn't think I could understand it if I did read it. But with the knowledge that I have of it now, the book of Revelation is showing pretty much a collection of what the devil tries to do and God mucks it up for him. What the devil tries to do and God showing himself stronger than the devil. If that's God's plan for the tribulation period, 
then why would his plan for the last days of the church be less? Why would he not want the church revealing to the world the greatness of his power when we know that's what he does during the seven years of tribulation? Those are the days I'm looking for. And those are the days that I believe are here. Let's pray. Father, we see your plan. We see your purpose. We recognize how close we may be to the end. And so we ask you for the rain. We ask you for the outpouring of the Spirit of God. We ask you for the display of your power and the manifestation of your presence. That we might see, even as they did in the early days of the church, people running to the kingdom of God, running to be able to be a part of your family, running toward salvation, running toward deliverance, running toward peace, and running toward their healing. You said, Father, that in this place you would give peace. We pray that the Holy Ghost would be in such manifestation in these last days that the church, every church that names the name of Jesus would be flooded with people seeking to enter into your family. Father, we ask that you would grant us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. We pray, Father, for the precious fruit of the earth. That which you have long patience for until you receive the early and the latter rain. Holy Spirit, quicken us and lead us. Guide us into the truth of your word and order our steps that we might be in the right place at the right time to help and to minister to others. Father, we thank you for showers of rain. We thank you for spiritual manifestations, Holy Ghost manifestations. That the power gifts of the Spirit would be in operation. 
working of miracles and the gift of faith. That the revelation gifts of the Spirit would be in operation. The word of wisdom and the word of knowledge and discerning of spirits. And that utterance gifts would be in manifestation. Tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy. Draw from us, Lord, those things which you would use and the ways that you want us to be used in these last days so that the church would walk among the world with no sense of shame or no sense of condemnation. But that the church would leave the walls of the church building and take the power of God out into the world to effect a change, a healing and a cure unto all that we meet. Father, we know that you desire these things. We know that we're praying every bit of this according to your will. So Father, we ask that you do even more than we know to ask or think. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Folks, if there's ever been a time, the time is now for us to live beyond just what suits us. If there's ever been a time to live and to operate in this earth for the benefit of others, it's that time. If there's ever been a time to be open and sensitive to the leading of the Holy Ghost, now's the time. Say it with me. The glory of the last day church, the glory of our church shall be greater than of the former church. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you, folks.